Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast for History, the Journal of the Historical Association. Today we're on episode four of our new series which explores different areas and branches of history and today we are looking at medieval Jews. I'm joined today by the wonderful Dr Dean Irwin. Dean completed his PhD at Canterbury Christchurch University where he studied the records generated by Jewish money lending activities in England between 1194 and 1276. He is an independent scholar interested in the records, especially charters and financial documents produced by and in relation to medieval Anglo Jewry. He is also developing a project on the Jews and the baronial reform movement from 1258 to 65 in England. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dean. Okay, so firstly, for those who might be unfamiliar with the topic, can you give us a brief overview of the history of medieval Jews in England? Yeah, sure. So there's no evidence really of any Jewish settlements in England before the Norman Conquest, so before before 1066. Uh, there's some isolated references which might or might not be Jews, uh, but for the most part, it, it's thought that Jews are a phenomenon. Certainly, there's a, a Jewish community in England by the end of the 11th century, whether that's by the end of William the Conqueror's reign, so by 1087, or at some point during William Rufus's reign. But certainly, there's a community established at London by the 1090s, and they come mainly from Rouen. Uh, in Normandy, as one would expect, given William the Conqueror probably invited them over. Uh, but there's also evidence of them coming from other parts of France and to a lesser extent Germany as well. And they really remain a London-based phenomenon through the early years of the Norman kings, right up until 1135 and the reign of King Stephen. King Stephen obviously associated with the anarchy, but also a period when Jews start to settle outside of London. So we get communities in Lincoln. Uh, we get them in Winchester, in Oxford, in possibly in Cambridge, and in Bristol and Worcester. Uh, and, and then it's really in the second half of the, the 12th century that we really have start to have decent records for them in the pipe rolls from the reign of Henry II. Uh, at the beginning of his reign, there's a tax on the Jews in 1158 or 1159. And we get this gives us a wonderful insight into the early history of Anglo Jewry. And then we really pick up sources as we move on into the 12th and 13th centuries. Obviously, the first coronation is particularly associated with the Jews, largely because it resulted in the deaths of a lot of Jews. Uh, the London Jewry was attacked at the time of his coronation. A wave of anti-Semitic attacks on Jewish communities spread throughout the country, culminating in the attack on the York Jewry uh, in March 1190, which saw the deaths of 150 men women and children at Clifford's Tower. Richard's reign is also associated with the Articles of the Jewry, which I work on. Um, and also, uh, by the end of the decade, the Exchequer of the Jews it has been established um, to, to gov- not only to govern uh, the Jews, but also to administer legal cases relating to the Jews, particularly money-lending cases. Richard dies in 1199 and is succeeded by King John, John's reign is not a good time for the Jews, but then it's not a good time for, for anyone, really. He famously taxes the Jews at the Bristol College um, and has one Jew imprisoned and pulls out a molar every day uh, until he agrees to pay one, one mark a day for the rest of his life. And he seems to be doing that until the 1220s. Um, and 1210 is labelled as a black year for the Jews by, by Cecil Roth. 
largely because of a, a culmination of challenges and persecution by the king. Um, and Jews obviously appear in Magna Carta, um, not necessarily Jews themselves, but the Crown's attitude uh, to, to Jewish debts, um, which had previously permitted for heirs who inherited debts that during their minorities um, interest would continue to accumulate. And also uh, it protected widows from having to pay their husband's debts first. But John dies in 1216 and is succeeded by a very young Henry III. Um, and the early decades of Henry's reign are really that what Barry Dobson termed as halcyon years uh, for the Jewish community. There's, it's very prosperous. It, there's lots of money. There's lots to go around. The, the community thrives, really. And there's very little legislation that we see in the second half of the 13th century, which curtails their privileges beyond um, the requirement in 1218 that Jews wear the tabula, the so-called tabula, the two tablets of mosaic law on their breast. By the early 1220s, probably every Jew and Jewish community in England has purchased an exemption to this, um, so don't wear it. And it's probably only really in the second half of the century that they had to wear it, although we have scant evidence that they actually did from 1239 to 1240, when the Crown started a process of heavy taxation on the Jews, which effectively amounted to annual taxation. And between 1240 and 1255, the Jews paid roughly 100,000 marks to the Crown, which really decimated many fortunes. Um, Aaron of York, one of the great Jews of 13th century England, was the richest Jew in England in, in 1240 at the time of the Worcester College, and then in 1255 he had to be excused from his college obligations on account of his poverty. So that just goes to show you the, the extent of the damage done by these taxes. Uh, and he dies in 1268 without noting the records, which is quite sad. Obviously, Edward I's reign is also quite difficult for the Jews, so Edward returns from the Crusades in August 1274, uh, and this is really an annus horribilis for, for the, the Jews the next 12 months or so. January 1275, the Jews are expelled from Eleanor Provence's, the Queen Mother's, Stour Towns, Worcester, Gloucester and elsewhere. And the, the Statute of the Jewry is imposed later in the year, which prohibits Jews from lending money at usury, but also imposes a Jewish badge, limits to the place that they can live and various other things. And then in 1290, the Jews are expelled. Um, the Edict of Expulsion is issued in July, um, 18th of July of 1290, uh, requiring that all Jews leave England on pain of death by All Saints Day, um, so the 1st of November. And they're allowed to take the movable goods with them, but any debts or properties which remain in Jewish hands at the time of the expulsion automatically defer to the Crown. And really, this is the first uh, permanent expulsion in European history. Uh, there have been lots of little expulsions, whether that be from uh, local towns or places like the Ile de France, but this one really sticks and it's uh, the Jews aren't allowed back into England until the 1650s under Oliver Cromwell. Fantastic, thank you, Dean. And I think you obviously made a good point about John's reign in terms of, like you say, it's not a particularly enjoyable reign for most people, but particularly not the Jews. And it's actually really interesting to hear about those different settlements and how they kind of spread and migrate and set up elsewhere I think that's going to be a really interesting avenue for people who perhaps want to maybe look at their own cities and towns and work out some of the Jewish history there 
And can you tell us a bit about your own research and how you kind of got into this connection with medieval Jews in the first place? Years ago, a decade ago, in fact, I did a A-level course on the Angevin Empire from 1154 to, I think, 1215, because it stopped a year shy of King John's death for some bizarre reason. As part of that, there was a very small component on the Jews of medieval England, um, and that was the only only bit of the course that I didn't really like because there wasn't swords and people on horses knocking 10 bells out of each other and so uh, but subsequently have as a form of penance have returned to the Jews and researched them extensively so I I, I work largely on misunderstood records uh, and these are either the, the receipt rolls which, which list Jewish contributions to colleges or the records generated by their money lending activities or, or any re- really administrative financial documents, and also documents produced in the towns rather than those produced by the Crown. Um, and I've worked on everything from archives and archival collections to, to the material features of the documents and their enrolment, their administration, their production, their storage. Uh, and I'm also starting to use these now to think about people. So I now have an article forthcoming on the middling members of the community and sort of the the wonderful thing about the tally trolls is that that we know who is paying what so although the poorest are excluded actually we know really well who the richest Jews in England were so it's the people below them who I've uh, begun to trace and that's a very long-term project and also I'm working on Again, on the, the re- money lending records, which I worked on for my PhD, but for over a much longer period, stretching from 1100 to 1327, and just thinking about them in different ways by including the early Norman stuff and then the 14th century stuff, which is really fun. Again, using really pedantic sources, and I suppose my, my work in general falls under the heading of exercises in pedantry. But good fun. No, but I mean, what you're looking at is actually that kind of minutiae of the record is where we do get those kind of hidden histories and be able to piece things together a bit more by combing through the record sometimes that like you say people think are dull people aren't interested in so much is actually where we can start building together a better picture of some of these histories so thinking about some of these people some of these histories so who are some of the kind of key medieval Jews that people might want to find out a bit more on I mean I think everyone should want to find out all about all medieval Jews to be honest but some of the the key ones are Aaron of Lincoln in the 12th century he was the richest Jew ever to live in medieval England which is a fact which I think is oft uh, ignored but he was um, the second richest man in England after the king. Um, he died in 1186. When, when he died, instead of his heirs inheriting his state, Henry II, in fine unto him fashion, uh, effectively confiscated his entire estate. The treasure he confiscated effectively ended up at the bottom of the English Channel when it, it was being shipped to France to fund Henry's war against Philip Augustus and then Richard I, or the future Richard I. But the debts are really exciting for me because they collected, or at least the Crown attempted to collect, the Exchequer of Aaron, or the Skakari Aronis, it was established to administer them. And after five years of hard work, there were still about £15,000 worth of debts uh, which were transmitted into the pipe rolls. And this sort of allows historians to calculate that Aaron's estate might have been worth somewhere in the region of £100,000. 
which for context, the annual income of the Exchequer at the time was about 20 grand a year. We've also got lots of 13th century people. I think, I think although the 12th century Jews could be studied, I think it's really in the 13th century when the, the, the records come into their own and we have lots of men and women who we can easily study. I think uh, Sue Bartlett, the great, great Sue Bartlett, did lots of important work on women, as did Hannah Megat in her doctoral study, and Emma Cavill and Adrian Boyarin are now working on them. But Licaricia of Winchester is certainly one of the most important Jewish women um, of the period. There's just been a statue unveiled to her in Winchester, uh, along with her son Asher. And she's a really fascinating um, figure, not least because she's involved in um so many of the great um events of, of the day um and has dealings with Henry the third um and is unfortunately murdered in 1277 with her christian nursemaid which is itself itself interesting because jews weren't meant to have christian servants and she's just a really badass figure um who everyone should get behind and, and learn about and i think if you're going to stood, uh, learn about one medieval Jew, let's make it a woman rather than a man because men don't need any uh, further championing. So Licaricia of Winchester, equally Muriel of Oxford. Um, David of Oxford divorces her so that he can marry Licaricia, another formidable woman. Equally, I focus on the Latin records, but there are many rabbinic sources for someone like Elias de Menachem, the, the great rabbi and money lender of the 13th century who had an international reputation. Um, and it, it's one of those really nice things that the work of people like Pinkas Roth on the, the English responser approaches him from one side and then the Latin sources provide an entirely different approach. And you, just bringing the two together is really fun. Uh, he also uh, imports a massive amount of kosher wine into London in 1280, which is, makes him an incredibly endearing figure to me. His brother Hagen is also really interesting. It must be a particular note of irritation for Hagen um, that he was always regarded as less senior than his brother in charters and, and various sources. But in fact, Hagen achieved the, the highest rank it was possible for a Jew uh, to occupy in medieval England. So he is presbyter Judeorum, the, the arch-presbyter of the Jews, so the, the senior secular official for the Jews uh, and works closely with the king as a result of that. He also survives an assassination attempt from the previous occupier of that office, which is also really cool and really worth studying. Um, and not enough is written about assassination attempts in history, uh, particularly within the Jewish community. But my favourite medieval Jew, if you can have a favourite at the distance of 700 years, is Creston of Genta, who no one had ever heard of, but appears in all of the record sources and seems born in the early 1220s, is active from the, the late 1230s and can be traced in the records until 1289, so just before the expulsion. And quite in contrast to the general pattern of the Anglo-Jewish community, his fortunes don't decline during the uh, 1240s to 1260s. Instead, they grow massively and they seem to grow for, from about a pound or two to £300 per annum in 1275. So he's an amazing figure. Thank you. I think that's uh, lots of exciting figures. And I mean, I, I know of Licaricia. I think she is probably someone do, we all do, as you say, need to know more about. But having those other figures and those families gives us quite an insight as to actually there's quite a few active 
Jews that we could dig into a little bit more. Thinking more broadly about medieval Jewish history, Jewish history in England, what are some of the current kind of topics that people are looking into a bit more? Um, yeah, so money lending is a perennial topic of interest for, for people working on the Jews of medieval England, like it or love, it's omnipresent in the sources, or certainly in the Latin sources, largely because most of them are set up to administer parts of money lending activities. And um, so in that respect, if we're going to study anything, or if anything's going to be visible in the records, it's going to be money lending. Equally, the law is a, a, another well-trodden topic. I mentioned the Exchequer of the Jews being established before, uh, and we have a wonderful series of roles of their proceedings uh, they don't survive terribly well before the 1260s, but from 1266 onwards, we have uh, a relatively continuous run until the early 1280s. And these provide a really exciting insight into all aspects of, of Jewish life in medieval England, although admittedly it is inherently slanted both towards money lending and um, to the richest member of, members of the community. So there's one, one thing in history that remains a constant, which is the law is always expensive, and, and to, to pursue litigation requires a lot of money. So money lending and law, actually, uh, you require money to do, which is a shame and also means that we will never know about the vast majority of the Jewish population in medieval England, largely because they didn't have the money to actually engage in either of those two activities, which would have made them visible. And also Jews are exempt from paying tallages below a certain income as well. So most Jews that we know about are, are going to be the richest. Other topics are women. Women's history has been enormously expanded in, in the Jewish context in recent years. It went through a lot, rather fallow period in, in the, the second decade of this century, when previously people like Suzanne Bartlett, Hannah Mayer, Victoria Hoyle had done really exciting work on the Jews from 2000 and the 10 years after that. Actually, not much was done in the decade after that. But now we're, we're back to people doing research on on the topic again and actually with really exciting implications so uh, at the moment Emma Cavill is working on Jewish women from the perspective of the legal sources and Adrian Boyarin is working on them from a mix of legal and literary sources and there's a long tradition in England or scholarship on England's Jews of using literary sources um, and that continues apace and William of Norwich's Vita is always attracting new publications and there's lots going on there. Conversion is another topic which has really grown in scholarship in recent years. I think two PhD theses have now been completed on England's converts. So Lauren Fogel's in 2005 as a book um, and then um, Joshua Kirk's Oxford thesis, which is available online in a wonderful read. And both of them are actually. And then I think another theme which is beginning to come out but really needs to come out much more in the next round of scholarship is the role of Jews in the urban community. So we've always known that Jews live in towns rather than the countryside but historiographically speaking they have very much been plonked in the towns rather than integrated into the scholarship on urban communities. So I think we're going to see much more on that going forward in terms of how Jews and Christians live together in an urban context. And also, they are here for two centuries, and I pe think people forget that slightly. They do integrate over the course of that time. They may, they may be regarded as Jews, but actually 
how much this matters in a local context versus a national or theological context is a point of some confusion for me at least and hopefully we'll, we'll start to, to to work out how towns function in a much better way because medieval towns weren't ghettos or didn't have ghettos and um, so effectively Jews and Christians would have lived side by side and what we need to understand next is how yeah, that idea of community, obviously not just Jewish communities, but like you say, that idea of integration, that idea of a wider mixed community would be so interesting because, you know, we tend to think that there's quite harsh division sometimes with this idea of othering, of this idea of disparity between groups. So, yeah, I think that kind of investigation would really bring to the fore some interesting discussions and just on that point i think a lot of emphasis has been placed on the jewish badge actually and particularly in the the context of the the synod of oxford uh, commemorations but in fact would a, the person who lived alongside you need a badge to distinguish a jew from a christian and i think that's another really important question that uh, we don't think about actually is did, did, was this badge actually needed to distinguish a jew from a christian or was it just to make the church feel better just another thought Absolutely. Obviously, you've touched on the ideas of actually what we're limited to or limited by the sources that we have available. I mean, I'm a historian of queenship. I sometimes double looking into elite women. And that is a topic that you get slightly driven towards because of the material that's available for you. And that's obviously not saying that we can't ever tell the lives of the ordinary people. But you know, we are constricted, like you say, if we're looking at financial sources, then it is going to be the Jews that have money that then appear in those types of sources. So that's, uh, like you say, gives us more food for thought. And in terms of thinking about either the historiography or just more recent research, what have been some of the kind of like biggest developments in medieval Jewish history over the last decade or so? Like, has there been something that's jumped out of you that's been really interesting? Yeah, so I suppose the thing that I, I always think of as a watershed moment in the historiography is the York 2010 conference, which brought lots of amazing scholars um, together in the context of, of York, obviously, but lots of people who were th thinking about the topic from various different approaches, whether that be history, administration, literature, art, archaeology, all of these things brought together under one roof. And I first discovered that there were Jews in medieval England in 2011, so I, I've very much grown up in the, the shadow of that, that, that conference and the proceedings which uh, appeared with York Medieval Press in 2013 and, and I think that's just a, a wonderful example of how interdisciplinary the field is because for a long time particularly from from the 1880s and up until about the 1980s that century if you go back and read what was written actually it's all very samey lots of things on using records and legal records and various things and I love legal records and pedantry and everything but it's all pretty much along the same model it, it's only in the 80s and 90s that these models start to, to deviate depending on people's background and what people are doing and also their intent and I think we see this best in, in the proceedings of, of that conference which are just wonderful and all the essays in it are, are really amazing and I, I think well worth either reading in full or dipping into and out of it if you will and um, 
I don't think you'll, there's an essay in there that you wouldn't learn massive amounts from. But I also think that highlights another point is that there are now lots more people in the field. So it used to be the case that one or two people, maybe three to push, per decade emerged to write um, the, the history of the Jews of medieval England. And now there are loads of us. Uh, and also most of us are trained as medievalists or, or in our respective fields. So, so we're much more confident in using archives rather than previous scholars would have been. And if, I, I think, again, it was sort, sort of a slightly more rebellious generation trying to move away from that same scholarship rather than uh, and do our own thing. So when I started working on money lending, everyone said, why are you doing that? Everyone's written about money lending. And what I actually wanted to do was not study money lending at all, but work out how Jews lent money. And that was an important thing, which opened lots of um, doors. And I think lots of people are doing exactly the same thing of looking at uh, areas which have been explored at length in new ways and opening up new avenues of research as well. And I think the final point that I'd make is that actually the really exciting point is that lots of people who aren't in the field of, of medieval Anglo-Jewish history per se are making contributions through individual articles. So David Carpenter is a perfect example of this, a great 13th century scholar, scholar of Henry III, um, who produced an article for the, the collection of essays for Paul Brand, another great historian of medieval Jews, on Little St. Hugh of Lincoln. So using his sources and his knowledge of the, the, the Latin sources and, and to bring his insights onto the Jews. And that was really revolutionary. So we've got our own homogenous uh, field, as it were, and then people coming in and out and making contributions. And it's really exciting, both in terms of um, scholarship, but also conferences. And there's lots going on and lots to be excited about. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And obviously we've touched on this a little bit, but within medieval Jewish history, there's obviously been, and the historiography, there's been quite a strong focus on persecution, massacres, obviously the Clifford's Tower incident you mentioned, expulsion. However, there's been some really excellent work done on other topics, which give us a much rounder view of the lives of medieval Jews. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe touch upon one of these topics and give us that kind of broader overview of what life might have been like. Yeah, I mean, that's not to denigrate the amazing work which has been done on anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. And lots of really important work has been done about that by various people and really important work is ongoing but lots of people have also begun to think in sort of this Saulo Bauer idea of moving away from the lacrimose conception of Jewish history to, uh, to, to sort of say what else do the sources say so narratives of massacre and persecution are particularly obvious in the chronicles for example in England is here where, where the ritual murder accounts originate at Norwich first and then at various other towns in England uh, throughout the 12th and 13th centuries. But I think one of the really interesting things about those narratives and indeed about massacres in general is that we have also almost no evidence of Jews being targeted by their neighbours. You may hate your neighbours, you may complain profusely about them, but you don't tend to go out and kill them. And this is a really important point, which I think is often lost in the, the historiography. So in 1190, for example, when uh, Richard I finds the, the citizens of York for the massacre of the Jews, this is largely because everyone who was actually involved with it has fled. So the only people he could target was the, the citizens of York for, for the payment of this fine. There's, again, in the 1260s, 
although there are anti-Jewish massacres which accompanied the Montfortian period. Again, it's not really people within the communities who attack the Jews. And I think here we have two things at play. One is attacking the people who've lent you money, and the other is the idea of a Jew rather than the Jew themselves, because it's always much easier to hate an idea, someone you've never met, rather than someone you live alongside. So neighbours and communities are a particularly strong uh, feature of the, the work that I've tried to do. And I think also we, we have lots of really amazing evidence of, of Jews and the civic community working together. And um, There are lots of charter witness lists which, which see Jews and Christians, the leading members of both communities, um, interacting and working together in harmony. And actually the way that the, the money lending legislation is set up means that Jews can't lend money at all without working or at least working amicably with their Christian neighbours. And actually, many seem to have been much more than amicable neighbours. They seem to have got on very well. Uh, we see this at Hereford in 1287, um, with a marriage in the Jewish community to which many Christian neighbours are invited, um, much to the chagrin of the, the local bishop of Hereford, who threatens them all with excommunication, and they seem largely to have ignored that threat and gone to 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 the knees up after the after the wedding. You should never underestimate the capacity of a wedding to bring people together in in history. Uh, people will always go for a free bar uh, and ignore the threat of excommunication. Just as an evolution of that, I think I think also from my perspective, working on money lending, it, it's easy to look at them as a evidence of Jews uh, Christians hating Jews. If you approach them from the end of the transaction whereby people um, don't want to give the money back, basically. But I work on the records which were generated at the start of that relationship. And arguably, that's when the Jewish-Christian relations were at their best, their most prominent, because everyone loves the person handing over a sack of silver uh, when it's time to borrow the money. It's giving them back, which tends to cause problems, whether that's trying to avoid repayment or massacring your, your creditors. It's, it, it, it's a wide spectrum of avoidance, but, but fundamentally, Again, at the beginning of the transaction with the sources that I work on, strong Jewish-Christian relations. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I think that idea of, again, neighbouring, community, family and so on, that those kind of examinations would be so wonderful to see because it really just gives us this bigger, better picture of how people do coexist happily. And it's... Uh, you know, it's a bit like the news today, isn't it? All news is bad news to a point. And I think sometimes that's what we get from the records. We don't get the simplicity, the goodness of everyday life. We get the drama or the scandal or the murder or the persecution. And certainly from Matthew Paris, we get that. <laughs> Matthew Paris is uh, someone who... I may be lynched oh. by certain members of the medieval community for that sentence, at least, but I, I, I stand by it. I would stand by it with you. Matthew Paris yes. is definitely someone who gives us more than um, its fair share of skullduggery and scandal unnecessarily. So, so moving forward, looking forward, what would you like to see researched next? You know, what kind of areas of um, topics do you want to see more research done on? I mean, obviously, I want to see more research on women. I think that that's clear that we need, even although great work has been done, more still remains to do. But I think one of the most important things which has become clear over the last few weeks 
that we absolutely need is the history of the, the church in England's relationship with the Jews during the 12th and 13th centuries. Because this tends to just be put down to, all oh, the church hates the Jews and blah, blah, blah. And actually, we have evidence of Jews and the, the church working together as well. Uh, Jews funding the building of monasteries. Jews, lots of monasteries only get the lands because they buy Jewish debts. And I think we need a much more comprehensive study of and Jews and the church um, than perhaps the reductionist approach. And I think we also need um, to focus on the, the English episcopacy and individual members of that group with Jews. Um, so Grossetesk is a perfect example of this. He is famously remembered for, for, for his in, encouraging Margaret Quincy to follow Simon de Montfort's expulsion of the Jews from Leicester um, or for his tracts against Jews on his deathbed. But actually, he was also seems to have been a Hebraist who at least tried to learn Hebrew and encouraged relations with, or, or at least cultivated relations with the Jews in 13th century Lincoln. And I think also um, that we absolutely need more scholarship on the Jewish community of Lincoln, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a second Jewish community in England by the second half of the 13th century, after only London, and it's, it's really got everything. It's got the financial uh, records. It's it's possibly not got archaeology, as was long thought, but that's another story. It's got literature, it's got month, it's got cultural traditions, it's got everything, um, and it's just a beautiful city. And I think more research on Lincoln's jury and Lincolnshire's jury as well would, would be, be beneficial mainly because I just want to read it um, and it would be amazing. I would definitely agree with you there. Like Lincoln is such a important city and it's definitely something that we do miss in terms of thinking that connection because when you were running through the, the places at the start where Jews moved to once they started going outside of London and I was just like, I would want to know more about their settlement in any of those places because we just don't know about them like I say the history and like you said earlier it's excellent scholarship that's been focused on this kind of the persecutions and the expulsions but the history I have picked up through undergrad and moving forward has been on Jews and expulsion from London from countries and so on and not on the settlements or its relationships with religious authority so I think that could be some really juicy material so now we've put the word out there we just need to <laughs> find people with a bit more time or money to get some of those ideas going and mainly because I don't want to do the church but we would like to read about it <laughs> there we go so to kind of tie us up what kind of works or books authors would you kind of advise for any of our listeners from the public and who want to now go and find out a bit more about Jews in medieval England or indeed for scholars who want an introduction to the topic or and the kind of like up-to-date work? Yeah so two, two textbooks appeared relatively both together in 2006 and 2010 respectively. Richard Huscross' Expulsion, England's Jewish Solution was published first and is a chronological survey of the Jews in England from 1066 to 1219 runs all the way through. And then Robin Mundell's um, The King's Jews, Money, Massacre and Exodus, 1066 to 1290, is a, a thematic study. So 
horses for courses effectively. We, and both are really accessible reads. I would also heartily recommend, which will come as no surprise from what I said earlier, the York 2010 volume, Christians and Jews in Orange of England, which was published by York Medieval Press um, in 2013. And also there's a wonderful volume called Jews in Medieval Britain, um, which is published by Boudel which gives a, a selection of essays from a variety of perspectives, although we slightly, slightly misleading in terms of the, there are one or two references to other areas than England and everything else is England, but, but still a really important study and a really wonderful read. And I think also a lot of the sources are available in English translation or English transcription by the Jewish Historical Society of England. So again, well worth just looking those up and just going through them and engaging with the pedantry as I have been. That's it. Thank you very much for those. And yeah, I mean, that 2010 conference obviously sounds like it was really impactful. So I hope that obviously people can uh, get hold of that 2013 volume if they're interested because it sounds like it was a really kind of impressive moving on the discussions a bit further and as well obviously if people are looking for those introductory books as well we'll post the links alongside the podcast so people can grab those but otherwise thank you for what's been a really entertaining and um, really interesting kind of thought-provoking discussion like you've given me so much food for thought and so much stuff that I didn't know about before so I've really enjoyed learning throughout this discussion a bit more about uh, Jews in England. Yeah it's been a pleasure. Okay thank you so much for joining me Dean and for our listeners we will post links alongside the podcast for these recommendations and thank you for listening. Thank you.